At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Thank you, John. Yes, it does. I am Brian Sullivan. And tonight, Red Hot Rivian, the EV maker, capping off a big week. The top analyst fueling the rally joins us. 70 million and counting. Meta's thread said to become the fastest growing app of all time. But should we buy all these eye-popping numbers? Lights, camera, no action. Fears of a summer box office bust growing in Hollywood. Can anything pull it out of the fire? Plus, Deep Fake Friday is back and one company's tech may revolutionize the entertainment and ad industries as we know them. You're going to see some crazy video. And the Airbnb for swimming pools now becoming the Airbnb for pickleball. Wait till you hear how much some of these courts are renting for. All that and much more. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. All right, welcome and happy Friday, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Okay, all of that is ahead. But first up tonight on Last Call, a little more of a serious topic. Is the job market slowing down? Or is the job market maybe not as good as some of the headlines suggest? Now, we know the job market has, by most measures, been hot. We had 200,000 more jobs added last month, which means there are now 3.9 million more people working than before the pandemic. And we have a very low official unemployment rate of just 3.6%. But here's a little bit of the rub. It may be better to look at something called the U6 measure of unemployment. No, that is not a submarine. It is the overall total unemployed people in America, which includes those considered only marginally attached to the workforce, which are folks who say they want a job, but they have not actually looked for a job in the last four weeks. And that number, that U6, tells a bit of a different story. So total unemployment, as measured that way, is at 6.9%. Exactly where it was in January of 2020, just before the pandemic. And that is, of course, nearly double the headline unemployment rate. Because, again, the headline rate that we tout all the time does not include people who are not actively looking for work. And there's more. When you kind of do a deeper dive into the jobs data, there are a staggering 5.4 million people who are not in the labor force, but still say they want a job. That's up 400,000 from early 2020. And you got 4.2 million Americans who want a full time job, but are only working part time, either according to the government, because their hours were cut or they can't find a full time gig. And that number spiked by 452,000. More people last month, which is a little odd given another piece of D.C. data, which shows there are 9.8 million open jobs in America, if you believe that. So what exactly is going on here? And is the American jobs market really as good as some of the headlines suggest? Well, that's how we're going to kick it off tonight. So let's bring in 
Former Labor Secretary under President Clinton, Robert Reich, former Council of Economic Advisors, acting chair under Trump, Tyler Goodspeed, and the president and CEO of the National Urban League, Mark Morial. Uh, Robert, I'm going to start with you uh, because you've kind of been studying these issues, you know, for, for, for decades. Is there anything that you see in a hot headline number in jobs that concerns you? Uh, Well, I'm concerned a little bit about the slowing down of the economy. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. The U6 U6 measure tends to be a better and more sensitive measure. There's still a lot of people who are on the sidelines. And uh, I don't think we can relax or should relax while they are on the sidelines, uh, which in turn gets me worried about the Fed raising interest rates still further. Uh, There's a lot of discussion among Fed officials and a lot of uh, scuttlebutt that the Fed is not finished. They want to get they want to get inflation down to two percent. Well, that's going to cause even more of this kind of informal uh, unemployment. It's going to mean that the labor market is even looser. And that's not necessarily a good thing. That's just weird, Mark, because you got five point four million people, according to the federal numbers we saw today, who who say they want a job. But they're not looking for a job. But there's 9.8 million open jobs. I mean, I, nothing seems to make sense here. Sometimes you see people in transition. They're between jobs. They're caring for family members. you got to dig a little deeper to understand why people may be sitting on the sidelines. Now, one thing that was striking to me is that the labor force participation rate amongst 25 to 54-year-olds is 83%. It's the highest since 2002. So once again, these reports give us some good news, consistent job creation, uh, some concerning news, uh, the U6 number, and some of the things that you've mentioned. So I do think it's an overall good report, but it doesn't mean that there isn't significant work that needs to be done. I am Absolutely concerned that the black unemployment rate spiked back up uh, after being significantly reduced last month. And last month, I said on CNBC. Yeah, I, I think Mark, it was not Mark. I think it was like nine out of ten of the jobs lost were in the African American community. Yeah, and it, it's a great concern because last month people said the headline was that that differential had been reduced, and I said no, we've got to look at the long term trend. So there are areas of great concern, but. On an Mm -hmm. overall basis, when you have 17 months of an unemployment rate below 4%, 3.9 million people more working today than in 2020, we've got to understand that we've got to look at these numbers on a comparative basis while having a discussion about what we need to do to improve this economy for everyone. If people follow me on on Twitter or social media, Tyler, they know that I've been a little bit critical of the president on some of the claims about jobs, 13.2 million. That's off of a very select base at the, at the pandemic low. But the one thing I will give the president a lot of credit on is his conversations around childcare, because I, I'm willing to bet if we polled our audience, all right, particularly a lot of working families out there, when they add up the cost of things like childcare and commuting, yes. and then they do the taxes on top of that, you know what you realize? I'm willing to bet if you lived in New Jersey, Tyler, and you're making less than 60 or 70,000 a year and got a couple of kids that need childcare, it does not pay to work. How do, you're going to come home with zero. You're going to net out and have somebody else with your kids all day. How do we fix that? 
Well, I think one way to fix it would be to indicate that you're going to make permanent the child tax credit provisions in the 2017 tax law. Because remember, in the 2017 tax law, we not only doubled the child tax credit, we also expanded the refundability of it. So even if you didn't face federal tax liability, so long as you were working, uh, you could claim the expanded tax credit. And that lowers the after-tax rate of return on work for people for whom work requires the incurrence of childcare costs. Yeah. So I, that, that provision is set to expire in 2025. So I would be working to make that permanent. Yeah, Robert, and, and also listen, there, there's a whole subset of the economy here, and I'm gonna say something that a lot of people may disagree with. But if, they, if they're watching CNBC, they probably got a little disposable income, they know what I'm talking about. Everybody now wants to be paid in cash. Almost any vendor that comes and it's not doing a big job. And I'm not talking about babysitters on the weekends. I'm talking about a lot of people who are saying, hey, can you pay me in cash? And I've encountered people who say, well, because my workers, they, they want to claim they're not working, but they want to get paid. Do we need a federal sales tax, a VAT, if you will, to try to capture a little bit of the revenue of that underground economy? Uh, well, it's a good question, and it comes up from time to time. Uh, the problem with a federal sales tax is the same as any sales tax. It tends to be regressive because it takes a bigger bite out of the paychecks of lower income people than it does out of uh, higher income people. So is inflation. Uh, so I, I, it's also extremely difficult to administer. Uh, the, the third point is that, you know, and we haven't really got into this yet, uh, child care subsidies also work. We've tried them. We have a lot of experimental data. We have a lot of research. Uh, many, many lower income people desperately need affordable child care. And why don't we do it directly? What do you mean? Like, what would we do, Robert? How, how do we do it directly? Well, we could, we could subsidize child care in a variety of ways. I mean, one experiment uh, that has been going on has been to provide uh, workers, families with additional, particularly low-income workers, with uh, uh, child care subsidy uh, chits that they can cash in for additional child care. Another experiment has been to provide in a community setting yeah. high-quality, stimulating child care that is early childhood education, essentially, and it has a huge payoff. Uh, down downstream later on in a child's life and uh, many things that can be done uh, but we are so blinded in terms of our inability to to see the possibility mark this is a good time to try yeah i'm glad we're zeroing in on this issue of child care because for young workers for women uh for people just entering the workforce who want to have families who are responsible for children it is an essential issue struck something very important, Brian, and that is rational people will look at their expenses. And if, in fact, it doesn't make sense uh, to work out of the home, they may look for gig jobs. They may mm -hmm. look for work at home jobs. So I think the American Rescue Plan's child tax credit needs to be made permanent. I think we need early childhood education on a comprehensive basis. For those who say it's an expense, I say it's an investment that will yield a significant return. And I, we uh, obviously, to the we obviously, in we, we, we agree on that. And I think that's a big part of the problem, Tyler. But but it's not all the problem. And I, I've talked. If you, if you know me, if you've ever <laughs> hung out with me, I talk to everybody. I talk too much. I know that. I go to restaurants. I go to wherever I go. I I try to meet the owners, the managers. Everywhere I go, everywhere I go, 
They can't find workers. And yet there are millions of people, according to the jobs data today, Tyler, who say they want a job but are not looking for a job. And so the unemployment rate, I'm going to give this to Tyler. So the unemployment rate comes in, I would dare say, artificially low. So I, I think this is there, this is always the case that you're going to have some frictional unemployment for whatever reason. You you folks may not have looked for work in the past four weeks. There were quite a few of those folks in in 2018, 2019. And that's part of the reason why three quarters of the flows into employment in 2019 were folks coming in from out of the labor force. Also, there's the fact that today we have some regional dispersion in labor market strength. So some parts of the country are yeah. really hot. Others are still lagging quite a bit, and it's not easy for workers to move from where unemployment is relatively high to where unemployment is relatively low. On the childcare issue, I should just caution that, that a challenge with direct subsidies is that supply curves slope upward. So unless supply of childcare services can instantaneously respond, you're going to get some price pressures. And the, the, the distinction between the, the 2017 price of expansion— would go up. The price of the care would go up. Wouldn't be fifteen hundred a month. Cor- it might be two thousand a month now. Correct. And uh, and another issue is a, diff- a key difference between the twenty twenty one expansion of the child yeah. tax credit and the twenty seventeen child tax credit expansion is that the twenty twenty one removed any income requirement, so you didn't have to be working in order to er- earn that. So it effectively eliminated the subsidy for work that was implicit in the 2017 tax uh, expansion of the child tax credit. And it also meant that you had uh, higher implicit marginal tax rates as that phased out. Tyler, Mark and Robert, it it was a very good discussion. I think an important discussion. I'd like to invite you all back to do the same one. We'll continue where we left off. More on that. A critical issue. I know it's Friday, guys. Really appreciate you staying late. Thank you. All right. We are just getting started on this Friday. Coming up, Janet Yellen starting off a high stakes meeting in Beijing with an unexpected bang. Plus... It is pedal to the metal for electric truck maker Rivian has this sloth of a stock finally sped up. Join Finteract, a peer-to-peer community of financial services professionals, and keep your finger on the pulse of the industry. Finteract offers a digital hub to start conversations, connect with fresh perspectives, and problem-solve with peers. This members-only community also provides access to virtual and in-person events where you can chat tech stack, develop efficiencies, and learn new ways to propel your business forward. Apply at Finteract.net. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. All right, time for tomorrow's news tonight. And we have got one story that could have big geopolitical implications. While in Beijing, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is criticizing China's harsh treatment of American companies there. Yellen is the latest high-profile U.S. official visiting China in an attempt to ease tension between us and China. Yunus Shun joining us now live with the very latest from Beijing, where we know it is Saturday, Yunus, so we certainly appreciate you working. Yunus. 
All right, well, Eunice is working, but the audio is not. So we're going to try to get that back up. All right, in the meantime, let's turn now to the electric car market. It seems like all the talk over the past few weeks has been on Tesla. But one company seeing a big surge in the stock market is Rivian. Take a look at this. Shares of Rivian up nearly 50% this week, up 14% today. Stock reaching a seven-month high, although it still well down from its post-IPO euphoria of $135 a share. Now, Dan Ives, you might have heard of him, is out with a new note on Rivian, which gave some fuel to the rally. Dan is raising his price target on the stock 20% of 30 bucks. Says the company is, quote, making a major turn toward executing on its longer-term business model. But can you really still make any money on a stock that is still losing so much money? Joining us is the man himself. That is Wedbush Securities Managing Director Dan Ives. Uh, This company is bleeding cash. Dan, they've lost some executives. Why the bullish mood? Yeah, I mean, look, this was a nightmare coming out. You know, if you go back to the IPO and a lot of the supply chain issues they've hit. But I believe there's a massive turnaround happening at Rivian. I mean, we're, we're seeing firm demand, production now. They got their arms around. And I think this is one where it's much brighter skies ahead. And they, they could start to comprise ultimately down the road 5 7 10% of this market. And I think when you look at where the stock could go, I think it's just the early days of what I view as a massive growth story playing out. Okay, is there anything in your call? Obviously, you're bullish. You raised your target, thirty bucks a share. By the way, got a lot closer to that today, maybe because of your call, Dan. What would be the the other side? What would, what would give you any hesitancy on Rivian here? Yeah, I mean, to your point, Brian, the, the worry is okay. They're going to bleed cash for the next call at eighteen months. Can they ultimately then start to generate cash? Can they start to gain share? Do you have comfort in production? I do. I mean, I look, clearly there were speed bumps and black eyes coming out of the gates. But I think this is just a massive underappreciated growth story. I think what RJ and the team have built over at Rivian. And there's massive adoption. You look at firm demand. I mean, you you talk to, to everyone out there around the country You know, when you're doing your trips. And I think Rivian's one. This is really the start of what I believe you know, I won't call it the next Tesla, but this is mm. one that could really start to comprise a significant market share that any investors not appreciate. Maybe it, well, listen, I've driven a Rivian. I've driven a Rivian, Dan. And there's, it's, by the way, the, the SUV, I think, is one of the most beautiful looking cars out there. Uh, I've driven one. I, I've got my beefs from a driver perspective, but with all cars, you're going to have the beef. Uh, but they're not cheap. They're not cheap. And the wait time has come way down for one. And I do wonder, Dan, does that mean demand is slipping? Or are they just getting faster and better at making the car? Yeah, it's, it's exactly that. They've gotten faster and better at, at making the car. I mean, that production was really the bottleneck here. You know, look, right now in electric vehicles, it's Tesla's world. Everyone else is paying rent. But now you're starting to see Rivian come on. And I believe this is ultimately a category that they're creating and it's not a zero-sum game. 313 area code, GM, Ford are going to be massively successful in EVs. We view this as a $5 trillion green tidal wave that's starting to play. I think Rivian is going to be a big piece. I think ultimately $30 in terms of our price target could just be the appetizer as yeah. to, to what the main entree could be. Fair enough. Dan Ives, make it the call. I will say this. On the car itself, Rivian, if you're listening, number one, you got to give a, you got to be able to turn off the regenerative braking. I know you need it. 
but it can't be soft and hard. It's got to turn that off and get CarPlay and Android Play at some point into that system. It does not yet offer those. Dan Ives, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, let's now get back to Eunice Yoon in Beijing on Jenna Yellen's high stakes meetings there this weekend. Eunice, can you hear us now? I can hear you, and Brian, it's really great to be able to hear you since I'm usually on the opposite side of the day. But in any case, Treasury Secretary Yellen um, met with American business executives uh, for an American Chamber of Commerce event, and that included companies like Boeing, Cargill, Bank of America, Medtronics, as well as S&P. And she said that she was particularly troubled by punitive actions against U.S. firms and that she was concerned by new export curbs on two metals used for chips. Now, Amcham's president told me uh, later that that he felt that her trip really addressed what he described as a pain point for the U.S. business community here, and that is the U.S.-China tensions. Now, the Treasury Secretary is going to have a big day today. She's expected to meet with her Chinese counterpart. Uh, he Lifeng is a vice premier and also a key member of President Xi Jinping's new economics team. And these talks would come after she met with the Chinese premier, Li Chang, uh, Li, who has been um, tasked with wooing foreign investment as well as convincing governments, especially in the West, and not to de-risk or wean themselves off of China. He told her that China's development is a, quote, gain rather than a risk. And Yellen also uh, took a softer tone with him, uh, saying that the U.S. uh, didn't want a winner-take-all approach and repeated uh, the broader goal of the Biden administration to boost um, communications on all levels. Now, uh, Brian, one other thing that was really interesting, I think, around her trip is the commentary and the impression that she is leaving here. Uh, uh, Premier Lee pointed out as well as the state media, has been kind of obsessing about how the fact that there was a rainbow over the tarmac when Yellen arrived in her plane. And so um, he said that this is a good omen for U.S.-China relations, and that's how it's been playing out in state media. And then what was also interesting that is what we're seeing is, is in social media, they have been obsessed with how she showed up at a local restaurant, which was in an open setting, a lot of Chinese people, and people have been talking about how, you know, wow, an American government official of her standing would be seen just at a random eatery. And um, I don't know if this is intended or unintended soft power by the Americans, but uh, it's having an effect. Eunice Shun, uh, big story there overseas. Eunice, love seeing you, by the way, live on a Saturday in Beijing. Eunice, be well. We'll talk soon. Thank you. <laughs> All right, on deck, 70 million signups and counting. Meta's new Threads app on track to smash records. But is anybody actually doing anything on Threads? Talk about it coming up. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the you. Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. All right, time for your Friday RBI. And today, let's get random but interesting on a massive move in the American economy. Literally a massive move. 
New data is out that shows how COVID changed not only how we lived, but where we lived, because there was a massive migration over the past couple of years. And where we went is clear. We went south. More than 2 million people moved to the southeast in Texas in just the last two years. They went to Texas, Florida, Tennessee, Georgia, and North and South Carolina. San Antonio is about to become bigger than Philadelphia. Phoenix already is. And even little talked about Jacksonville is now bigger than San Jose. In fact, more than 60% of all job growth since the pandemic has been in just those six states. So if millions are moving south, where are they moving from? That's easy. Here, the Northeast, the Boston to Washington corridor is bleeding population. And those moves weren't just about people. It was also about money. Because Bloomberg reports that all these new Southern residents helped put about $100 billion in new income into those six states and, of course, take money out of the Northeast. Here's what's fascinating. With that move, those five Southern states and Texas now add more to America's GDP than the entire Washington to New York to Boston corridor. Hear that again. Florida, Texas, Tennessee, Georgia, and the Carolinas now add more to America's total economic output than D.C., New York, Boston, and the rest of the Northeast. Wow. Because think about it. The Northeast has really been the capital of capital forever. But apparently not anymore. During COVID, Americans took their kids, they took their jobs, and they took their money south. Random, but interesting. All right, also happening, Twitter's newest rival is booming, apparently. Just one day after its launch, Mark Zuckerberg says his new Threads social media app has seen a whopping 70 million downloads, and signups are not the only thing booming on the platform. Activity, apparently, is just as high. The Verge reporting Threads had over 95 million posts on the platform the morning after it was launched. Everybody's playing around with it, right? But is this hot start going to just continue, or is it going to kind of, you know, taper off or even fade away? Joining us now is the Wall Street Journal's personal tech columnist, Joanna Stern. Uh, Joanna, I've got it. By the way, at Brian Sullivan, if anybody cares. Um, I poked around on it. Not overwhelmed. It's a it's a Twitter clone. I think yeah, I think we we all know what it is. It's a Twitter clone, and it doesn't even have some of those features that we all like about Twitter so far, right? You don't even have a feed where you can just see the people you're following. There's no ability to edit posts. You can't see even the character count. So yeah, there's there's a lot of place for this to go. And as you brought up, do people actually keep engaging with this platform? I mean, I don't know about you, but my Threads feed right now is people just talking about Threads. I don't know how That's long it. that can last. Yeah, I, I do. And I want to ask you two questions. Number one, how many of these downloads do you think are real? Let's be honest. I'm sure there's some automated stuff out there. And I know it's new. OK, and on my feed, I guess there's a way you can set it to follow or see only people you follow. But as of now, my feed is pretty much just ads. Like if this just becomes one big ad platform, I got some from Toby Keith, Norwegian Cruise Lines and some company makes barn doors. That's interesting. So funny enough, Instagram or Meta has said they haven't actually launched ads there yet. So my guess is what you're actually seeing is organic posts from companies. And that's not surprising, right? Everyone has flocked to get on this new new social media train, including companies, whether they're food companies or travel companies, airlines, et cetera. They are all going there. And, and same with celebrities. Meta made a big push to get celebrities on this platform early. They're really trying to steer this as more of a celebrity entertainment, fun, happy-go-lucky place versus Twitter, which is more seeped in politics and 
you know, some some not as nice content. Yeah. And do you think it will be, Joanna, do you think it will be the kindler, gentler twiddler? I mean, twiddler, Twitter, because everybody kind of is hoping for that. But the reality is, I mean, let's be honest, the problem ultimately is people. Yeah, this, this can't last. I mean, this no. is the history of social media, right. right? This, this is, Social media is a mirror. This is, this is how we are as people. We all come and congregate and people are going to fight. People are going to share misinformation. As you mentioned before, people may not even be people. They may be bots. But I do think this is off to a very good start. One thing to note, too, is that Instagram has built in some tools here to help people block people along the uh, flag, all, all of the things that you see on Twitter. But also Meta has a deep history in this space, especially around moderation. Yeah, and we talked about it last night, Joanne. It's kind of amazing how Mark Zuckerberg kind of went from like the bad guy of the Internet to like now the good guy because Musk is now the bad guy. It's like Darth Vader when the he like, of two evils. It's like Darth Vader when he like threw the emperor down the thing. He was like went out a hero. Joanna, thank you very much. Yeah, it's the lesser of two evils, I think, right now. There you go. At Brian Sullivan. What are you, what's your handle? At Joanna Stern. I should have known that. Joanna, thank you. So creative. I know. I so know. Well, mine too. All right. <laughs> Still ahead. It is Deep Fake Friday. And coming up, a video that you, you got to see this. And it will amaze you and maybe terrify you. Saw a tiny clip. My team won't show me the rest. They just told me what to wear. You'll see what I'm talking about next. Welcome back to Last Call. I'm Brian Sullivan. It's Deep Fake Friday, and we're talking to an innovative company that can replicate any human's face, voice, and personality through an algorithmic process in a matter of minutes. Don't believe me? Well, I'm not real. I'm a Brian Sullivan digital double created by a startup called Brask, using images and video of the real Brian to compile what's called a mask. I'm being replicated by a stand-in actor to read this monologue, and then my appearance and voice is changed using artificial intelligence. So now that I've got your attention, let's send it back to the real Brian Sullivan as we dive deeper into this revolutionary technology. I have not seen that before that. They told me I could not look at it, just kind of wear the same thing. That was amazing, a little terrifying. I'm, I'm shocked at how handsome I actually am. But other than that, it was a little bit, I mean, that's, this is amazing. So let's talk about that now. Global brands are now working with that company, Brass, to help celebrities and other high-profile clients do things like appear in TV commercials without actually physically being at the shoot. For more on this and how they did it, let's bring in the founder and CEO of Brask, Maria Shamir. Maria... Uh, thank you, by the way, for doing that. Again, my team sprung one on me. They like to keep it, keep it busy here. How do you do that? Hi, Brian. I'm really excited with your reaction. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that's, that, that's really great. So uh, I, I think that our technology is working more simple uh, than your reaction. <laughs> so that's, that's really easy. Uh, if you ask me how does it really work, I can tell you that uh, we have our unique neural network that the team has been working on over three years. Uh, I think that the only one who can compete with us today in equality is Disney Lab. They are really great in this stuff. So, you know, it's interesting when you travel internationally, and I know you're in, in the Netherlands, where, by the way, it's very late, so thank you. Um, 
big name celebrities, some of them won't do commercials here, but they'll do commercials overseas. Like Brad Pitt may sell whiskey in Tokyo. And maybe they want a shot of him walking down the street, you know, in Tokyo. Now he does not need to go. As long as he and his people make the deal and approve it, you could get somebody kind of with a similar build, slap his face on there, and Brad can just chill in you know, Malibu or wherever he is and, and collect the check. Absolutely, yeah. Um, when you ask me about this case, I'm thinking about Leo DiCaprio or about Brad Pitt, for example, chilling in Miami or Malibu. And in the same time, uh, these guys can make commercials in Australia. And this is really possible right now. Or imagine some movie where young version of favorite actors come back to us, authentic young version, not like in the uh, Irishman, you know? Yeah. So uh, soon we will see live uh, baseball matches with legendary players who are not with us right now. Uh, like we can, we, we can watch a, a soccer football to you match with Pele, you know, Babe Ruth yeah. in baseball, people who, who have you know, left our planet a long time ago and we can watch that on TV. Now, that, that's the cool side of AI, Maria, but there's a lot of people watching this thinking, OK, it's not 100 percent perfect, but it's pretty doggone good. How do we make sure this kind of technology is not used for really bad things? Yeah, I understand what do you mean. Uh, in my opinion, the main thing is to overcome the anxiety about the nature of AI. After all, we are used to image and video editors every time. Uh, didn't we have real people around us on Instagram before Digital Doubles was created? What do you think about it? Wow, it, it truly is amazing. Thank you very much. Maria, really appreciate it. All right, before we go, we've got another clip of this. Again, not my call here, folks. This, blame the producers. Let's take a look. Beyond the ability to replicate Brian's appearance and voice, I can also pretend to be a more worldly Brian Sullivan. What if Brian was fluent in French? J'ai très peur de l'intelligence artificielle et j'espère que mon travail n'est pas en danger à cause d'elle. I just talked about my fear of artificial intelligence one day taking my job. Let's hope that's not the case. Okay, très bien. Mon français pas. Okay, I speak a little bit. I understood 80% of what I said. Either way, very, very cool stuff. A big thanks to Brask and Maria and to, of course, my lovely team who, I'll make it up to them somehow. All right, coming up, Hollywood's summer box office woes may become a panic. What is behind the Hollywood slump? We're going to ask Alex Winter. Yes, Alex Winter of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and more about that, the writer's strike, and his revealing new documentary about YouTube. That's coming up. All right, welcome back. Time now for a quick last call watch list. And we have an update to a story we brought to you last night. Major food delivery apps are scoring a notable, though maybe temporary, win in New York. A state judge has, at least for now, halted New York City's new minimum wage law for food delivery workers. It was set to go into effect July 12th, requiring minimum pay of $17.96 an hour. Uber, DoorDash, Grubhub, and Relay are suing the city over the law. Shares of Uber and DoorDash both seeing gains 
Maybe in the wake of that decision today, a New York judge has now scheduled a hearing for July 31st. This could be very temporary, but for a brief moment, we'll see what happens. All right. Meantime, lights, camera, no action. That is seemingly the case with this summer's box office numbers. The big movie opening of this past weekend, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, falling into a bit of a pit. It made just $60 million, which is not awful, but it's against the nearly $300 million budget. And it's not just Indiana Jones suffering. Overall ticket sales are lagging across the board and over 20% lower than when compared to 2019, the year before the pandemic. Disney Pixar's Elemental and Warner Brothers' The Flash are among some of the other lackluster movies so far this year. So what exactly has happened to the big Hollywood summer blockbuster? Well, your next guest knows a thing or two about the topic. He was a trained stage actor from NYU, co-wrote the hit MTV comedy The Idiot Box. And oh, yeah, one time traveled in a phone booth from a Circle K to basically save the world in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. He's also got a documentary called The YouTube Effect out in theaters today. And actor and director Alex Winters joins us now. Alex, it's great to have, winter, to have you on. Alex, obviously, I'm a fan, kind of a fanboy, so if I screw things up, I apologize. But Alex, you know, listen. I'll blame the deep fake. Yeah, the, exactly. We'll see if this is real. The deep fake wouldn't make the mistake. Yeah. Uh, I'm in that's Cabo how, right now, so it's all good. Yeah. Per- perfect. And we're going yeah. to get to your documentary in a moment. Um, these movies that are coming out, they were done, but you can't blame the writer's strike because they were written well before that launched. It, it just, mm-hmm. are there any good ideas left? Um, I, you know, look, I, I know we don't have a ton of time and it's, it's a pretty complicated issue, as you know. I um, mean, it is related to the strike to the degree that the industry has changed. And as you guys are quoting 2019 numbers, which is a really good year to look at, uh, it's pre-COVID. But also, there's been a rapidly advancing sort of shrinkage of the movie-going audience as a result of the rise of streaming technology and a lot of the storytelling going to TV. And the problem with that is very related to the story you just mentioned about the the food delivery guys uh, and the the lawsuit, because a lot of the technology, new technology, doesn't really want to pay workers equal pay and equitable pay. Uh, So that's why we're in a strike, but it's also... Uh, why we're dealing with a shrinkage in movie going. There's less movies being made. If if we were in the pre-existing era, we wouldn't freak out over a few hits that don't land. Because I think Mission Impossible is going to open yeah. next week and do humongous business. And everyone will forget about the summer woes. Uh, but the reality of it is, is it is shrinking. In fact, the, you know, we're, we're in a labor crisis. That's why we're striking. The work is shrinking across the board. And AI is going to shrink more jobs. It's already shrinking more jobs. So a lot of these new technologies are not being matched with equitable pay. It's amazing. Between Top Gun Maverick and Mission Impossible 22 or whatever it is, it's got a Rotten Tomatoes score of 98, which I think is like the highest for any Tom Cruise movie ever. They're just good like it's, movies. It's Tom Cruise's world, and we're all just kind of living in it, Alex. Well, well, I think the model is that if you if you have really great movies that you work really hard on, some of those are really going to hit. Some aren't. That was the model that the studios used to be very comfortable with. Not all of their movies were supposed to or expected to hit. It's just we live in such a more fraught industry now where every movie has to hit, and they just don't. You know, I grew up at a time when there were flops all year long, but you remembered the the ETs or the Jaws or the Star Wars, but there were so many big, giant movies that didn't hit. But now the, the pressure is on. Yeah, and I want to switch gears to another form of, of media, obviously, Alex, and that let's get a brief look first before I ask you about it. I want to get a brief look to our audience of your documentary, digging into the power and the influence of YouTube, as well as some of the dangers and threats posed by the platform. Here's a look. 
you just have to get eyes on the video. Everything on YouTube changed when the recommender algorithm was introduced. It's not just algorithmic, it's very deliberate. I'm a weapon, I'm made to be thrown at you. I think YouTube is a very intimate format. You're watching one person talk to you. When they start telling you about their beliefs and views, that pack a real punch. Now we're in this sort of misinformation apocalypse. Uh, Alex, how powerful, how influential is YouTube? I think it's really hard to to grasp how giant a platform is. The number one searched website in the world is Google. The number two in the world is YouTube. They're both owned uh, and run by the same company. There's more eyeballs on YouTube as a platform. It's not just a social media platform. It's news. It's entertainment. It's search. It's information. Uh, and it's community. So we're dealing with really a new kind of form of media company. And uh, a lot of what it does is really good. It provides a lot of really important services in many areas because it is vast. But because it's so big, the harms are big harms. And I felt that we were really looking at Meta. We were looking at Twitter. Uh, but people weren't really focusing on YouTube. And I would also say it's really not so much an algorithmic issue as a business issue. They're monetizing. It's an ad-based model. So they're monetizing the content. And when the content is hate-driven, uh, then you're essentially putting ad money behind the rise of white supremacist terrorism and other forms of violence. Yeah, I, I can't wait to watch it out in theaters as well. Of course, you can watch it in a lot of different ways, as, as we just yeah. discussed. Alex, I know this yes. country, listen, we got a lot of divisions in this country. I get it, red, blue, that team, your team. But I think there is one thing that we can all agree on, and that is San Dimas High School football rules. It does indeed, sir. It is a most excellent football team. I actually spent my 13th birthday at Raging Waters in San Diego. <laughs> so uh, terrifying. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> it was fantastic. Alex Winter, great to have you on. Welcome back. Thank anytime. you so much. No, thank you. Really right. appreciate it. All right. It's computers. All right. Coming up, the summer's hottest trend, renting out a pickleball court. Yep. And we're going to talk about it with the CEO of a company doing just that next All right, welcome back. Did you know that pickleball has been the fastest growing sport in America the last three years, and it's not showing any signs of slowing down? 36 million people played the sport last year. It's booming. But finding a good court can be hard, but it might have just gotten a little bit easier. Swimply, which is a rental company originally popularized for its private pool rentals, has added pickleball to its offerings. Joining us now is Swimply CEO Bunham Laskin. Bunham, good to have you on. It's a very quick interview. I apologize. How hot is pickleball right now? I mean, it's probably the hottest sport that has hit America in the, our, at least since, since I was uh, a child. Um, I think we've grown from a little over 2 million users to 36 million people um, in around five years. Um, it took basketball like 80 years to do that. So it's actually quite phenomenal to see how quickly it's, quickly it's growing. What are people willing to pay for a good pickleball court? Yeah, so Swimply started with swimming pools, obviously, and uh, we have thousands all over the country. Uh, you come into the app and you find local swimming pools and people, and it starts to range from $25 an hour all the way to $100 an hour. Pickleball is kind of new. We just got into it to help people find a local court with how fast it's growing and how difficult it is to get somewhere place to play. Um, we're seeing courts right now going from $25 an hour all the way up to some that are with beautiful sunset views by the ocean for $150 um, an hour. $150 an hour? 
Well, people are able to bring like up to 10 to 15 friends yeah. um, on them. I and mean, most of these places have like more than one court on the property. Are these all, we're, um, we're, we're, we're seeing some of the videos and, or pictures, I should say. Uh, are these all like a private homes? Are these at country clubs? Where, do, where are we finding these pickleball courts? Yeah, these are uh, courts you can't get anywhere else. These are private courts um, built by um, pretty successful people that are passionate about the sport and want to share their court with people um, in their area. So every one of our courts, think about it exactly like Airbnb. It's somebody with a court that's not using it that um, gets joy from sharing it with people in the community. Can I ask this? If, if I, I hope to someday be that rich that I can rent out my own pickleball court, but how do you make sure that, you know, that people are like behaving themselves? Not like the pickleball crew is like a real rough crowd, I don't think, but you know, if you're coming to my house to play pickleball, behave. Well, the cool thing is you probably don't have to be that rich to uh, own a pickleball court anymore, knowing that now you can earn an income sharing it with people in your area. Um, but yes, we uh, safety has been a priority uh, from day one. I launched this company um, after my mom had her 12th child. I'm the oldest of 12. So, and we're talking about swimming, so safety and double-sided verification and insurance. Uh, we pretty much cover all the nine um, yards when it comes to security, safety, and making sure that both the owner and the guest are well protected um, throughout the, their experience. Yeah, and very quickly, any sign of it cooling off? Um, I, I think our biggest struggle is keeping up. Wow. And how's the, how's the pool rental business going, by the way? <laughs> uh, the pool, we actually had, just broke every single record on the platform. We had over 20,000 people on July 4th celebrating um, yeah. at Swimplays. It was the biggest day ever. If you could um, combine so swimming pools and pickleball, that would be a sweet deal. Thanks very uh, much, Bunham. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Last call. CBC's documentary, China's Corporate Spy War, is next. Have a great weekend. Join Finteract, a peer-to-peer -peer community of financial services professionals, and keep your finger on the pulse of the industry. Finteract offers a digital hub to start conversations, connect with fresh perspectives, and problem-solve with peers. This members-only community also provides access to virtual and in-person events where you can chat tech stack, develop efficiencies, and learn new ways to propel your business forward. Apply at finteract.net.